John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grass withers and the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So we spent the past few weeks working through this prologue to John's gospel for our Advent series. And in the first week, we looked at the the giant reality of both the, the eternality of Jesus Christ and the personality of Jesus Christ. John is highlighting these this giant revelation of Jesus In the beginning, before anything was, he was with God and he was God. Emphasizing this eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Before everything was, he was. And if anything was made, it was made through him. He's raising this, uh, our sights to the largeness of who Jesus is, the eternality of Jesus. But, but he also then talks about the personality of Jesus in that this eternal, immense God becomes man, dwells among us. He puts on flesh and dwells among us. This second member of the Trinity, Jesus, God the Son, puts on flesh and dwells among us, putting on full display the personality of God. He reveals to us God's intense love for humanity and his care for us in coming to get personally involved in what's going on down here. We are not deists in some idea that God, like a clockwork, set everything in motion and left us alone hoping things would work out. That God is immense enough to do that, but he starts it all, and then in Jesus Christ, we see this this desire, this concern, this intentionality to get personally involved in what's going on. And then from there, we looked at a, the, some of the themes that begin in the Gospel of John in this prologue. We talked about Jesus being the life that he uh, and what that all meant. And we did a survey kind of through the Gospel of John, all the places that Jesus speaks about being the life. And then we talked about Jesus being the light. These are a couple of themes that come to us from the Gospel of John. But this week, there's one more theme that we cannot miss when we read through this prologue. And it's the rejection of the Son. 
the rejection of Jesus. We've seen him as the light, the eternal God, also the personality of God. He's the God of who Jesus is the life. He is the light. But there also is this theme that is brought out of the rejection of the Son. And it's, a, it's an important theme to recognize because of the, the dissonance we get when we think about all the grandness the Gospel of John is giving us, and then he's rejected. There's this, he, didn't, he was not received. It's, it's, it's out of step with the whole flow of the passage. This is not the reaction that you would expect when the God who creates everything enters into time and space. Surely, when the Creator shows up, He's going to be lauded. He's going to be rejoiced in. He's going to be worshipped because it's what He deserves. Surely the world will bow and rejoice and welcome and praise and receive Him when He comes. He's made all of these things. He's come to dwell with us. He's come to bring light and life. Why wouldn't there be rejoicing? It's a, it's a theme that you can't read over too quickly. It, it needs to send up some warning flags in your mind when you read this prologue. Because what we would expect to happen is exactly what doesn't happen. He shows up, verse 10 tells us, He was in the world, the world was made through Him, but the world doesn't even know Him. Verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive him. This Savior, God in human flesh, shows up on the scene and he is scorned. He is rejected. He's despised by those he was sent to and eventually they put him to death. That should cause a bit of a struggle. How, How is that what happened? That the Creator through whom all things were made shows up and doesn't get worship, doesn't get praise, doesn't get, he gets rejected. He is not received. So that question needs to, to trip in your mind. And then the next question you might ask is, why are we talking about this at Christmas? <laughs> because it's Christmas time and this is the season for um, peace and joy and family and gets togethers and, and all of this good, warm, sentimental sort of, you know, uh, good feeling. And here we are in the prologue of John discussing the rejection of the son. Aren't we supposed to be focusing on the birth of this baby and the joy that it brings? If we're supposed to be focusing on the manger and the birth of this son and joy and peace, Peace has come into the world, good news of great joy. Why in the world would we take any time to talk about this inconsistency, seemingly to us, of the Creator entering and then being rejected? It's a good question to ask. Why does, because you could also ask then, why does John include it? If he's going to talk about this grand reality of Christ showing up, the Word made flesh, Why does he bring it up? And I want to answer that by saying that the reason why we have to discuss the rejection of Jesus Christ is because what we desire at Christmas time and here in First Christian Church, what we desire is true, weighty joy. The Advent theme for this week is joy. And what we are after as Christians, as believers, as we celebrate Christmas, is we are after true joy. 
We want weighty joy is what I'm going to call it. Weighty joy. We're after a weighty joy. We want something substantial, something real. I'm talking about a weighty joy in contrast to often the joy that we get at Christmas time. We're surrounded by hundreds of Christmas joys. Decorations, the houses all look pretty with the lights on, your houses are all decorated up, presents are underneath, stockings are going to be filled, all of these joys that we have, and we're surrounded by them. The Christmas music comes out, you know, and we're surrounded by all of these joys, and I enjoy them, but this time of year is flooded with often nostalgic and sentimental joys that don't really have enough weight to carry the day. So, one of my nostalgic joys is the, um, I'm just going to say it, the Beach Boys Christmas album. And the reason why is not because it's such great music. If you like, I'm sorry, if you, like, if you like the Beach Boys, I just insulted you. And if you have other musical tastes, I've insulted by saying Beach Boys is good. But anyway, when I was a kid, mom and dad had a record player. And so as we would gather out all of the Christmas stuff from the closet and all the bulbs and all the Christmas decorations, we, us kids would walk over and there was a certain section of the vinyl records that were the Beach Boys. And there, that was all of the Christmas stuff. And we would pull out the Beach Boys album. And I have very distinct, you know, nostalgic memories of putting um, Little St. Nick on the record player and putting the needle down and listening to, to the Beach Boys Christmas album. And so I've bought a, and I've got my Beach Boys Christmas album that I get out every Christmas and I spin um, the Beach Boys Christmas album. And it's a joy. I enjoy it. It's a nostalgic joy. But there's no real weight to it, right? Like, I can't go every day and spin the Beach Boys Christmas album and enjoy it. It doesn't last. It, it, it lasts about the first... To be honest with you, about the first 10 seconds of the Beach Boys Christmas album. And then the nostalgic joy is just kind of all gone. Um, that, that's, that's often what we talk about when we talk about these Christmas sentimental or nostalgic joys. My sister's um, sugar cookies. I was just eating them last night at my brother's. And I, I, I don't know, there's something about her sugar cookies. And we were discussing, I can't get the recipe right. We don't do it right. But I think if I, I probably shouldn't make those every week and eat them because I would start hating the sugar cookie, right? There's this, there's this sentimental, like in the moment, and at the end of the day, it is not a, a weighty enough joy. You understand what I'm saying when I talk about weighty joy? It's not a substantial enough joy to really carry the day. It's just sentimental nostalgia. It's, it's a weak joy. It's so light and so airy that's barely even there. By the, by the 10th sugar cookie, you're finally sick of them. It takes about 10. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't last forever. Uh, it's just not big enough and weighty enough to keep us going. So what we are about as Christians at Christmas is we're searching for, I want something weighty that's going to carry the day. That when... Because we know that Christmas is just one day. We know that life is real. We know that suffering is real. We know that life is difficult. We know that joy is as as sentimental and happy as maybe a moment may be. We know there's just the next moment. We know that that life is just going to continue moving on. So we want weighty joy. Well, how does the rejection of the Son of God bring us this weighty joy? And if we don't consider it rightly... It really isn't going to bring us the joy that it should. What we are to think of is the sobering truth that when we celebrate this son on Christmas morning, he's come into the world for rejection. 
How can that be joy? I mean, aren't we again like, I don't know, Darren. So we look at the manger, this baby is born, and we, and we bring up rejection. How is that going to make me rejoice? How is that going to give me heavy or weighty joy? We know that this suffering and death is on his horizon. How can that cause us weighty rejoicing over his birth at Christmas? How can this tragedy of the cross be something that Christians throughout the centuries have rejoiced in? We rejoice in the birth of the Son of God and of His rejection by men when we realize that it was for that exact purpose He came into the world. The rejection of the Son was not the tragic ending, but the very purpose of His coming. The rejection of the Son was not the tragic ending, but it was the very purpose of His coming. When we read of the rejection of this one who was God in the flesh, we have to remember, this was not some accident that befell God as He was trying to accomplish His purposes. Like Jesus had come down and He was trying to do some certain thing. This, this was His mission and then uh, He was foiled. It was, you know, it's, what, a, what a sad way to end that Jesus ended up being murdered on a cross. This is a, a terrible tragedy. This child's life, death, and ultimate victory over death and his resurrection was exactly the mission that the Son had come to accomplish. When we read about this rejection, this not receiving of the Son in John's gospel, it isn't supposed to be this, I wonder why that happened. John includes it because that's why he came. That's why he came. Jesus makes this incredible statement in John 4.24. He's speaking with his disciples. This is after the woman wet the well. And he's speaking with his disciples and he says that they try to get him to eat something. He hasn't eaten all day. Eat something. And he says to them, my food, what I eat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And again, in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Think about what that means, that his mission was his own rejection. Jesus is not thwarted. He, he's come down to do the Father's will, and he does it. God's will is not thwarted in that way. He comes down. He's going to accomplish God's mission. His mission is including this rejection, this not being received. Just a quick read-through of Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Christ even shows up. It's abundantly clear this rejection was part of the plan. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. Read like this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar or acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ even. The suffering of the servant was part of God's plan all along. Jesus knew full well what his mission was and what it would mean for him. 
But consider this. I mean, think about that. He knows this coming to the earth, being born as a child, this rejection is part of the mission. Who signs up for that? Who signs up for that? To come and have this rejection. Think of it this way. Here's an illustration. Let's say you create a whole new genre of music, or maybe you invent a sport, a whole new sport, a whole new genre of music using, I don't even know what, use your own imagination. You create a whole new genre of music or invent a whole new sport, and as the years go by, it gains popularity, and they decide to have an awards contest. You've created this genre, you've created this sport, people have gotten, perfected it, and have have performed this sport or this music, and they go, and they're going to have an awards show. And you, as this creator... You want to go to this award show, right? You're like, this is the fruits of what I've done. I, I'm going to go because here's a sport. Here's a musical genre I've invented. I'm going to go to this award show. But what if, what if um, you get invited, but you're not going to be recognized? They say, you know what? Come on over. We're going to have an award show. You're invited, but we're not going to recognize you. I know many people would be like, if you're not going to recognize me, I ain't going to show up. Or or maybe you're you're going to be invited and and, and there won't. You won't even get an invite. I mean, what, what, what if you could get no recognition? If this award show is going to be giving any credit to someone else possibly for starting the sporting event. If there's no recognition, would you go? It would be an insulting oversight to totally leave you out for the credit when the whole award show wouldn't be there unless you were there, right? What, what an oversight and an insulting oversight that you would show up and not get the credit. Most people wouldn't even, would just like, you know what, do your, you know what, forget you, go do your own awards show. But what if you were invited and you knew you were going to get on stage, but what they were going to do is insult you and mock you? Then would you go? Who'd sign up for that? This thing you've created, this genre of music, this sport you've invented, people have played it, people are doing it, they're having award shows, and then they're going to invite you, but not recognize you, not give you an award. They're actually going to insult you. I don't know anybody that signs up for that project. I don't know anybody that volunteers to go to that. If that's going to happen, if that were you, if this were your life story, would you go? Who would go? And what motive would be strong enough for someone to actually go to that? And in a very real way, this is what Jesus has done. He's the one through whom all of this is created. And he knows that when he shows up, He's not going to get an award. He's not going to get a prize. He's going to be rejected by the very ones that he has made. Who would show up for that? Only someone with an overpowering motive. Someone who has such an important purpose to what they are doing that they will subject themselves even to absolute scorn to accomplish their purpose. What could that motive be? What could the eternal God be thinking to gain? He has, he has nothing to gain. He is the creator of all things. He, he has no need for human hands as though he needed anything. He's, he sits in heaven. He has everything he needs. He needs nothing. Why would he subject himself to this rejection, to this mocking? Who would show up for that? And he has done this. What motive could be big enough? He has done this out of a motive of complete Grace. Complete grace. He has done this. His mission is to save sinners from their sins. 
He had no need to do this. He had no obligation to do this. There's no, there wasn't like someone's up in heaven tying Jesus' hands, tying God's hands, saying this must be done. There was no obligation to do this. This is grace. This is the, the, the positive movement of God on our behalf by no compulsion of his own, just because he's choosing to do so. He's showing up into an environment of rejection by his own motive of grace to save sinners. He didn't need to do it at all. Do you hear what I'm saying? There was no obligation for the Son to come and be born in the manger. There was no need for the, res- for the rejection of the Son of God from God's perspective. He only did it out of grace to save sinners because of His desire to set His affections upon you. Do you hear me this morning? God did this not because you tied His hands, because He needed to do it as though He needed anything from you. He did it out of His love and grace and mercy so that you could be rescued out of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ and reconciled into back into God's family. He did this out of His own purposes of grace. He has done this to save you from your sins. Passages like Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came and He deserved all of the adoration, all of the service, all of the worship, all of the praise that the world could possibly give Him. And He gets rejection. Why? To serve sinners like you and like me. To do what Romans 5, 8 says, that while we are yet sinners, Christ dies for us. Knowing the coming rejection of the Son makes the birth at Christmas, a sobering reality. We're talking about weighty joy. There's a sobering that needs to happen. That this son has come into the world knowing exactly what's going to happen. His destiny is a life of righteousness that is rewarded with rejection and death and punishment and suffering. Knowing that the rejection is exactly what was planned and accomplished for the saving of sinners and their, and their supreme satisfaction, what greater joy could you have at Christmas? That God has sent His Son to rescue you and to reconcile you back to Himself. We all born dead in trespasses and sins. God has a holy law that we have been commanded to keep. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there ain't a one of us who can say we've done that for a second of our life. And because of that, we are deserving of God's justice for rebellion against His law. We deserve His judgment. Every one of us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what do we see at Christmas? God Himself doesn't say, here's the new ladder to climb up to me. Get to work, people. Here's how you accomplish a reconciliation with me. Get to climbing. God sets up a ladder, and what does He do? He comes down. He comes down and he lives the righteous life you should have lived but failed to do. Dies the death that you deserve upon a cross. Resurrects from the grave three days later so that everyone who looks to him would be forgiven of their sins. Reconciled back to this God. Adopted into his family and given eternal life. And given something that nothing can take away. 
Do you want that weighty joy at Christmas? Then look into the manger and rejoice, not in some sentimental joy over the birth of a baby, or not in some nostalgic religious sentiment, which is what we do at Christmas, but look at the manger and do not forget the sobering truth that this baby came with the purpose of suffering rejection. He came and accomplished God's will, suffering shame so that everyone who believes in him would be set free from their own shame. He came to bear the penalty of your sins so that you could be forgiven and have peace with God through faith in Christ and his word. Do you know this joy at Christmas? Do you know this joy? Not the sentimental joy, not the nostalgic joy, not the things that are fun at Christmas. Do you know this weighty, real joy? Is this the center of your rejoicing at Christmas? Nothing else can carry the weighty difficulties of this life. We need weighty joy. We need the greatest joy. And there is nothing larger than knowing your acceptance and reconciliation with the one who created it all. Jesus trades a triumphant reception that he deserves. He trades a triumphant reception for rejection so that we who deserve rejection would be given a triumphant reception before God. He deserved praise. He deserved a joyous reception. He gets rejection. We who deserve rejection could receive a rejoicing reception in heaven. Gazing at the manger gives weighty joy knowing that the mission of this life, of this boy, this son, this word made flesh, the mission of this life is the purposeful suffering of tragedy that we might, through him, be delivered from our deserved penalty, tragedy, our deserved penalty, and brought into eternal triumph. Let's celebrate that reality and rejoice in that weighty joy this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the weighty joy there is in the gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that as each one in this room this morning thanks upon and reflects upon the birth of your Son, the coming of the Son into the world, that, Father, you would find our broken hearts over our transgression, our rebellion, and that, God, you would grant faith that we would believe in what Christ has done for us reconciling us back to you, that you'd plant in our hearts this weighty joy that doesn't just last for a Christmas season, that doesn't just last for a a family holiday weekend, but a weighty joy that carries us through this life and into the next. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.